calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor. <laughs> I'm your host, Sarah Sentry, whose cat just climbed up on my recording equipment, so bear with me just for a second. But today we have a very special guest who is not my cat, um, Erica Schultz. Hi. Welcome, Erica, what's up? Nothing really, you know? Every time somebody says, hey, how are you? I always say still alive because I kind of figured the bar is pretty low these days. <laughs> it is, yeah. Got out of bed today. That is real, <laughs> real talk. Yeah. So Erica, like if you if you like run into somebody on the street and they're like, mm, well, I mean, in the pre-pandemic times and they're like, mm, what's your deal? What do you say? Um, it depends. If I know the person, then I'll probably be like, I don't know. But if, if there's just like a random person who says, what's your deal? I'd be like, I don't know. What the fuck's your deal? <laughs> like, like, what's the context? All right. Fair. This? That is a very literal Literal interpretation. That's your uh, writer bio. Yeah. What the fuck is your deal? What the fuck is your deal? That's actually, you know what? I'm taking that. That is now my writer bio. That's that's a good one. Oh, okay. So you wanted my writer bio. Okay. (laughs) Preface that shit. Um, Okay. Uh, So every time I have a conversation and I just like come out with something that's completely unprefaced and just random, my husband just turns and he's like, okay preface this shit because I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs) Okay, so what's my bio? Well, I'm a writer. I used to be a background artist at a studio and I've done some animation work, but I'm predominantly a writer and editor. The latest book that I have out now is a series called Legacy of Mandrake from Red 5 and Stonebot Comics. And Comixology Originals collected Forgotten Home recently. That's uh, all digital, but it will be coming out in print next year. Uh, I've worked for Marvel, DC. I've worked for Dynamite. I've done some horror. I've done fantasy. I'm pretty much kind of a Jill of all trades, I guess. I try and sort of dip my toe in a lot of different things. Yeah, I have been reading your work actually 
for a little while. I think that the first thing I read was the Xena series that you did. Mm-hmm. I am such a huge Xena fan. I have loved that series for my entire life. All of the people who did the comics, I'm all read up on that. So I was just curious, how did you start writing Xena? That just seems like such a odd job, I guess. So every time we talk to somebody who has written Xena, I'm just like, how did that happen? Like, Well, I had written previously for Dynamite. I did a series called Swords of Sorrow. I did a couple of the one shots for that series. Right, and then yeah. I did a Charmed mini series. So I was familiar with Dynamite. Uh, I'd also done some lettering and graphic design work with them. And Meredith Finch, who was writing the first Xena series, she and I had worked together on a couple of projects. And when she was leaving, she suggested me to pick up issues six through 10. I was familiar with Xena. I had the sort of basics of who the character was. But I really did a deep dive for the story. I wanted to make sure that anytime I take a character or a property that is as beloved as Xena is, that I'm respectful of the character of the fandom and that, you know, I add a little something new to it, but anything that I add to it is still part of the canon. And it's it's not something that's going to come out of nowhere. I didn't like throw Xena into like a time vortex and drop her off in 2020. Um, <laughs> I wanted it to be still within the world that they had already established. Yeah, I think it worked really well. I was just looking back over those issues earlier today and I was just like, this was a really good story. Like, I appreciated the way that you did bring in new elements to it while kind of keeping it in that same world. I feel like you did kind of the same thing for Charmed. I thought that that series was also really good. And yeah, you have a knack for just catching the characters' voices, I think. Definitely. The Charmed was like, it was so cute. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I have not seen Paige in like years. And yeah. look at her being like so fucking cute. I loved the whole thing. And Sarah's right. You just nailed their voices. I was like, whoa, Piper, I'm like hearing you in like a Holly, whatever her name's voice. Holly and Marie like, Combs. Yes. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. How did you prep for that? Did you watch a bunch of Charmed, read a bunch of Charmed? What, what were you doing? Well, I was a huge fan of Charmed when it originally came out, the original series. And I had watched all eight seasons of it, including the first three seasons with Shannon Darty uh, playing the older sister, Prue. Oh, Prue! And Zenoscope had also done some Charmed. They had done sort of a season nine and a season 10. And then Dynamite uh, acquired the license. And I was basically told that I could do anything from seasons four through eight, any story that would fit within there. Uh, I couldn't use Prue. I couldn't use Cole. So there were a couple of parameters that I had. I know there were some fans that were very upset that Cole was not in it. And I know fans were very upset that Prue wasn't in it. But contractually, I couldn't do that. So, you know, please let me slide on that. Damn you, Erica. Damn you. I did. I was like, oh my God, it would be so cool to see Prue in this. But a lot of shit went down, like down on the series. So I understand. Yeah. I mean, I I genuinely would have loved to have used Prue and I would have loved, I mean, that those first three seasons I thought were really great. I think considering the situation that they had, having to pick up on season four, having to recast and and things like that. I think that they did a great job. But I think those first three seasons really are like, for lack of a better term, sort of the purest of the idea of that sort of central sisterhood and things like that. 
And I really, I, I mean, I loved the show just in general. It started when I was in college. So I would like sit with my roommates in our dorm and we would watch it. So getting to work on it was great. Also, Maria oh. Laura, who's the artist. Yeah. She's fantastic. And she and I are trying to work together on a couple other stuff. She's working on Wonder Woman right now. So, you know, she's like fancy pants. Um, <laughs> she's too fancy to work with me right now. Um, but she's she's a fantastic artist. And she really brought like a lot of fashion and sexiness to it. Because the characters, I mean, those ladies were always dressed to the nines. Like oh, they yeah. were always dressed really, really well. And she just captured that. And she did just such a great job. So I had a lot of fun with it. One thing that always bothered me about the MCU movies, and here I go on a tangent, is that like <laughs> Steve Rogers never really talks about being an artist. So where that sort of bugs me, I sort of put that in with Paige. Because if you remember, like Paige was an artist. And yes! she went to art school and everything. And every once in a while, she would like paint here or there and stuff. So I really wanted to push that and bring that back. Having her charge be also an art school student and having Paige like have this sort of artsy background, I think it gave sort of just an extra element and dimension to her character in general and gave her a little more culture, I guess, for lack of a better term. It gave her, you know, depth. It let her be uh, more than just, you know, this half white lighter witch or just, you know, now you're in charge of other witches. She's like a person, right, who happens to also have a lot of fucking magical shit going on. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I loved those first three seasons. So my grandma loved Charm. She also loved Buffy, both before I did. So, you know, then I like saw them on Netflix and I ended up watching both and I was like, oh my God, what have I been doing in my life? And I just think that Charmed has such a unique way of talking about sisterhood, about talking about what makes us stronger, right? Like the only way the Charmed ones are really powerful is together, or most powerful, I should say, at least. And I agree with you. I think it was a rough transition to season four. Yeah. <laughs> it is It is rough to kill off a character people love and replace her with a new sister. However, like Paige ended up being a really amazing character and bringing a lot of interesting nuance to the Charmed One's way of being. I was also adopted. And so, I mean, she's not adopted, but, you know, she's, only, she's like kind of family, kind of, you know, not at the same time. Yeah. And so I had that relationship to my sisters, my adoptive family of like, oh, I'm, I'm part of this but I'm not part of this like I'm I'm you but I'm not you like I don't have the same last name as you you know so I felt like Paige always brought together these beautiful contrasts that made the story really interesting. But yeah, fuck, I wanted I wanted Prue to come back so bad. I was just like, bring me Prue. <laughs> and then I'm like, uh, you know, and I, I'm a creator. Like, I get that there are all these limitations. And then, like, sometimes I'm just such a fan. I'm just like, mm, where's my Prue? I want my Prue in here. Where is she? I, I get it. I do. Because, like, there are times that I just, like, want to take things in a direction. And then you're just like, no, nah, you can't. There are rules. <laughs> there, there are well. That's the thing is there. There are rules, and obviously, like there are nuances to contracts and and things like that, and NDAs and all that stuff. So, like, there's only so much that you could really say. But when people on social media start yelling at you, you're just kind of like, okay, listen. Like, I know technically I'm in the right, and legally I'm in the right. But like, why are you yelling at me? Like, sorry. I'm really sorry that I didn't, you know, make your life happy. Do you want a refund for the book? Like. <laughs> Like, I can send you, like, $3 if that's going to make everything go away. But yeah. it won't. That's not the nope. issue. I am all for fan fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I am all for fan fiction. And if I write a story that you don't like, 
whether it's characters that I created or characters that I just worked on, write your own story. Do it. Mm-hmm. Who's so st- many stopping do, you? Right. Like so, so many people do. And I think that it's healthy. <laughs> I don't know. There's some things where I'm like, yeah, this person on the internet kind of deserves to get yelled at, but not <laughs> if it's like, I just didn't like the direction that this story went or something like that. Like right. that happens. Right. And then we kind of grouse about it. Right. But you don't need to be tagging creators or anything like that. It's just, it's you didn't like, kill Prue. Like, you didn't kill Prue. <laughs> whatever his name is. The guy who made it, you know, Aaron, whatever, like he killed Prue because he didn't like Shannon Doherty. Like they had beef. That is not Erica Schultz's problem. (laughs) Oh, man. And she just did it to us on 90210. And then she Mm. did it. And then people are just like, you know what? I'm mad at Erica. All it was my anger Aaron about Spelling. 90s TV. Yeah, there it is. Aaron Spelling. Aaron Spelling. It was Tori Spelling's yeah. dad. I'm just going to yeah. assume anything that's wrong with 90s TV is your fault, Erica. Is that, <laughs> is that you appropriate? Know, I went through high school and college in the 90s. So, you know, my formative years, I, I could totally be the reason that everything sucks. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm totally fine with that. I'm like, wait, let's blame Aaron Spelling instead. <laughs> it does make anyway. more sense. Uh, Yeah, it is super cool that you've gotten to work with these iconic, you know, licensed properties, Xena, Charmed, that are both deeply feminist. They had a huge impact on pop culture. They mean a ton to queer communities. Like, that is such an amazing experience. What do you think was the most fun part of writing Xena or Charmed? I think it's on a personal level, being trusted to take them on was great because as creators, a lot of times we tend to second guess ourselves. We tend to second guess decisions, whether it's with characters or business decisions or whatever. So for the publisher to say, we trust you with these characters that, you know, are precious, it was really great. But I also, I mean, I think that being able to write these strong yet flawed characters that are women that don't need men in their lives, that are making decisions for themselves, have their own agency. I think that's important. I think it's important to see that, whether it's people who are just picking up the comics now or people that are you know closer to my age who grew up with the TV show or whatever. I think it's just important to continually sort of reinforce that, you know? Feminism isn't like a trend, you know, it's not like something that's like, oh, okay, so we'll have like five years of feminist TV or feminist books. And then, yeah, that's enough. It's not like that. So seeing it more and making it sort of more normal, I think is important. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Also, that kind of mirrors like what we've heard uh, occasionally from other creators where they're just like, you just end up feeling really honored sometimes whenever somebody is just like, hey, I know that you're not going to screw this up or something. And it's just like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) let's all celebrate that because I understand completely. I think as a creator, you're always a little bit waiting for the rug to be pulled out from under you, you know? I did what I could, you know, and then it's just like the reception of that or something like that might help. I don't know. For me, it's always kind of like that where I'm just like, I'm still getting work. That's amazing. <laughs> like, I'm the first person to admit that I tend to be pessimistic. Like I yeah, get that. Sure. So for a publisher saying, hey, we want you to work on this project, on, on this property. And, you know, it's a property that has a huge fandom. It's a property that has a lot of responsibility. There's that moment where I'm like, "Uh oh, am I the right person for the job? (laughs) Um, And then there's that moment of, oh, hell yeah, I can do this. Yeah, and if not you, then who, right? Like, that's kind of what I always think, is I'm like... 
Oh, I have a Even- list of people they can hire. <laughs> You're like, I know a lot of people who could do it. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I'll always just be like, well, if not me, then they might just hire some random person <laughs> who like will tell like a different story, right? So I always have to remind myself too that like, you know, your voice matters. You you get to say things too. But yeah, I, I too I, am I a usually pessimist. say too much, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, at this point in history, it's like, we've heard from the men. <laughs> let's, let's hear for some marginalized genders. How about that? So, you know, the cis men, I should be more specific. We've heard from the cis men. Yeah, so like, I'm with Sarah. I have to remind myself of that sometimes, too. Because I think imposter syndrome, ah, Nalo Hopkinson said this when we interviewed her, which like, destroyed me. She was like, oh, you can't have imposter syndrome if you're not doing the work. And I was like, Damn! Nalo, you're just so fucking smart. (laughs) My life is different now. (laughs) And I think that's like, it's an important part of how how we tell stories is like understanding that, you know, no one can tell a story the way you can. I also like what you said about feminism kind of being like, we have to keep reinforcing it in a way because these are both older properties, right? So it's interesting for it to come back because I remember when they first were doing like Xena comics, it was like Tops, <laughs> that that like trading card company <laughs> that started doing licensed properties. And of course it changed. It went to... I thought you meant like Tops were writing it, like people no, who no. are Tops. I was <laughs> like, how is that a problem? <laughs> that seems like a great thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I wouldn't mind that too much. Um, but like <laughs> Tops should always write everything. But <laughs> yeah, I remember this company doing it and it was kind of just adjacent to the show, but it was mostly written by like Roy Thomas or something like people who, you know, say what you will, maybe like their ideas on feminism aren't super advanced. But as the years went on, like, and it kind of switched publishers and things like that, you got to see basically just a lot more women writing and a lot more like marginalized genders writing it. So I think it did, it helped to reinforce the feminism of the original series in this way that I think is really interesting. And I think that that's important because The way we live in this world is that the attention span is so short. So the second something sort of gets out of the spotlight, it's automatically forgotten, whether it's a tragedy or a social justice issue or something like that. So consistently having stuff there, whether it's in the background or in the foreground, is important because otherwise people are just going to be like, oh, it's done. Yes, like, like, oh, feminism achieved, check. You know, like, (laughs) uh, no, that is not how this works. Yeah, you see that all the time, though, right? Where people are just like, oh, I thought we addressed that by, like, not doing anything. (laughs) But, like, minor lip service. Yeah, so about your (laughs) independent work, because you've done some creator-owned properties, too. Yes, I actually, um, as a writer, usually in comics, you tend to do creator-owned work first, and then you get picked up. My first creator-owned book was M3 that I did with the artist Vicente Alcazar. And that was kind of more or less my portfolio piece that I would send out to editors uh, looking for licensed work. So I sent it to editors like at Marvel and DC and things like that. And that was what got me work because my first licensed job was the Revenge, the Secret Origin of Emily Thorne, which was a uh, original graphic novel. Uh, It was sort of the prequel to the first season for the TV show Revenge. Oh, okay. I don't think I actually have read M3. I thought that I was a Schultz expert, but (laughs) I guess not. M3 was the first series that I ever did. It's a 12-issue series. I think it should be on Comixology. And it's a story about an assassin being hunted down by the FBI. 
her name is Machiavella Maria Marcona, and she's a young woman with this very large scar on her left cheek. At the time that I was writing it, I was recovering from a very bad car accident, and I had to have some facial plastic surgery because uh, a piece of my face came off, and I was very nervous and worried about what I was going to look like. And so this character with this huge scar on her cheek was kind of like my worst nightmare. And it was a very cathartic experience, this idea of, you know, how physical scars can be beautiful and things like that, and how you really shouldn't judge yourself by things like that. So it was very cathartic, but I had written the first two or three issues first, and I had started working at a studio in New York called Continuity, and I was doing some animation and coloring and art extensions for the Astonishing X-Men motion comic Gifted. And one of the other artists there was a man named Vicente Alcazar, who had worked on Moon Knight and Jonah Hex in the 70s and 80s, but had left comics to have a more fine arts kind of gallery career. And when he came back, he was just looking to get into comics because it was something that he enjoyed. And I gave him the script for M3 just on a whim kind of thing. And uh, he came back to me a few days later and he said, I love this. Let's do it. So um, after I picked myself up off the floor, because uh, I was <laughs> so amazed that somebody would want to work with me, uh, we ended up putting out 12 issues in about like four and a half years. It wasn't like a monthly book because obviously we had to do it, you know, around a full-time schedule. Right. But we did uh, 12 issues in uh, in about four and a half years. Yeah. It sounds to me like the choice of artist really influences what directions you might take. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, when I'm working on creator-owned work or if I'm working at a publisher that gives me the opportunity to choose an artist, I try and choose artists that will accentuate the work. I actually explained this to the Kubert School students the other day because I teach writing at the Kubert School. And I say, you know, the script is one piece. Every piece that someone brings to this, you know, the penciler, the inker, the colorist, needs to elevate the work as a whole. I've read comics that have a really good story and the art is really good, but the art might not be good for that story. Right, yeah. And I think that that's important. Uh, if you're an, a new creator and you're a writer and you're looking for an artist to collaborate with, don't just pick any artist that you think you like their work. Make sure that their work is going to elevate your story, whether it's the genre, the character designs, whatever. Really make sure that the artist that you choose is somebody who is going to make your work really shine versus just, oh, hey, that I like that person's Instagram. Let me go with them. Right. I think about in like the Charmed book, right? One of the most important things is like being able to tell the three very similar looking sisters apart. Right. And yeah, that artist just completely nailed that. And Maria also had to do likenesses as well. And that's never easy. And I really think that she was perfect for that choice because she has clean line work, but also because she does have this sort of like sexy, fashionable drawing, not cheesecake. And even, I mean, and I don't mean cheesecake in a disparaging way because like, you know, cheesecake has its place too. And, right. you know, everybody has their sort of like guilty pleasure in that. But that show always had like a sex appeal about it. You know, even when the girls were in sweats, it, it still had a sex appeal about it. And I think she, she really captured that. Yeah, I would agree. I really enjoy the Buffy comics. I really enjoy a lot of comics that are based on, you know, the Xena, the, the Charmed. And I think that the best art 
is both a likeness and not, right? Like it walks this Mm -hmm. fine line where it's like I'm not trying to actually portray Holly Marie Combs outside of maybe the covers. The covers tend to be like, whoa. But like, you know, in in the panels, it's like I'm doing a version of her that exists in this comic. And that is a hard line to find, you know? And I, I thought that Maria did an exceptional job with Charmed. So I can totally see what you're saying and how, you know, Sarah and I talk all the time about how like, you know, so much of what we get from comics is about different layers of the collaborative team team, you know, the creative team. And so, you know, we talk about like, you know, color can influence tone so much and, you know, the art can really make the story feel goofier or more serious or whatever it is. So I think your point is well taken for us and and very much in line with some of the philosophizing we have done about what makes comics work, which is, you know, just some crap we made up. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I like to think it's some good crap. If you've got a second, hit pause and go and rate and review us. Sure, we want your five stars. Sure, we'd love an essay about how great we are. But you can give us five stars and say, I like it. You can give us five stars and say, these cuties are cuties. You can give us five stars and say, I just love the sound of Essie's voice. I mean, I would probably cry if someone wrote that in a good way. So just give us a little (laughs) hand. Give us a rate and review. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This seems like a natural time to transition to talking a little bit about Forgotten Home, which is an original project. And like, I think you may have said at the beginning, but it might have said it when we were just talking, is is collected on Comixology and is now going to come out in print, right? Yes, it will come out in print next year. That is so cool! If you have Comixology Unlimited, Kindle Unlimited, or Prime Reading, it's free. Yeah, that's how I read it, actually. I just got it last week, so... Same, same, same. So, okay, I was. I just want to know everything. Like, I want to know where the idea came yeah, from. I want to know where together? all the cool words came from. So, where did you come up with this idea? What do you remember it being like? And how much has it shifted from early ideation to execution? Okay, so... 
Originally, I wanted to write the anti-Frozen. I wanted to write a story <laughs> about two sisters that hated each other and wanted to kill each other. Um, and I started writing that story and it became a more sort of classical fantasy, like dragons and stuff like that. But there were some bits and bobs of it that weren't fitting there, but still sort of had a place. So I kind of called them out of that story and put them to the side and tried to see, you know, okay, this is a new sandbox I'm playing in. What, what, what can I do here? And so I always like writing about crime and mystery and things like that. I've been called the poor man's Ed Brubaker, which I take as a high compliment because I love Ed Brubaker's work. So I was sort of tooling around with this idea of responsibility, of destiny, of sort of running away from destiny, but it always sort of finds its way to catch up with you. And I also sort of thought of some like social issues that were going on, child armies in other countries, in this idea of people who do the backbreaking labor of mining are not the ones that are benefiting from whatever ore or um, jewels or whatever it is that is being mined. And I just sort of started mashing everything together. And I came up with this concept of this young woman who leaves her home and comes to Earth and tries to make a life for herself here because she left her home behind, her home Janata, and she left it behind and she didn't want anything to do with it. She's raising her kid here and hopefully things will work out. And for about 15 years, it did. But circumstances and sort of destiny had a way of bringing her back. So she's an officer and there's a string of child abductions. She's a, a sheriff's deputy. Her name is Lorraine. And, uh, there's a string of child abductions all over the state of Montana. And so she starts going to the crime scenes and she notices that there's residual magical energy. And one of the abilities that she has being from this other world is she has magic and she has the ability to sort of tap into energy that people leave behind, kind of resonant energy. And she realizes that her old world is kidnapping people from Earth to fight in this sort of never-ending war. I thought that something that was really interesting about it was that most of the main characters are women. And then yeah. you have this other world, right? And like, it would be tempting, I think, to be like, all right, well, utopian society. But then it shows kind of the underpinnings of that, right? Like, there's definitely betrayal. And like, as you said, women who really are at odds. And there's still oppression, right? So mm -hmm. I think that it was kind of an interesting way to go. If I were writing a similar story, I feel like I would be tempted to be like, and then it's the magical land where the women rule everything. <laughs> so I liked that there was a bit more of a nuanced take on it. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy to simplify things and to say, if you're going to go sort of the magic route that, you know, magic fixes everything. And, right. and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't something that could fix everything. I wanted to make sure that there were limitations with the most of the population, the limitations or once they sort of reach adulthood, they lose their magic. And very few people actually have magic. The character of Trader is this character who is a pure-blooded Janadin, but he's never had magic. And that's sort of an anomaly uh, that makes him unique, almost to the point where the queen sort of almost refers to him as almost like, like as if he's disabled. And so I wanted to show that this magical utopia really has its own issues. It has its own problems. And it's not the lovely, wonderful world that everyone thinks it is. And that really sort of 
shakes Joanna, who's Lorraine's daughter, to the core when she really finds out what's really happening. I really appreciate the examination of war in this piece. It's not gory, it's not over the top, but it is unflinching, right? Like we yeah. we see battlefields where babies, they're not, you know, no, infants, but children, but they're baby children. Yeah. Like 13-year-olds, 16-year-olds, I don't know what their ages are. But they are just like, you know, laying there and you're just like, what the fuck? And that's what war is, right? Like even in our country, we just decide that if you're 18, you're like an adult and you can go to war and we're like, fuck science. It doesn't matter that your frontal lobe isn't fucking fully formed. This is a great yeah. idea. And it's like, yeah, because we we just, we put our children's lives on the line, their bodies on the line to fight for. And, you know, I think it's amazing that, is it Aliaza? How do you say it? I don't know how to really say it, but I say it, Elysia. Elysia. I love that Elysia is like a finite resource. I get frustrated when magic doesn't cost anything in like fantasy because I'm like, nothing is just there. Even oxygen, you know, we need trees to create it. Yeah. Like everything's interconnected. And that's what I, I thought was so powerful there is, you know, then you see someone thinking from an extraction mindset, the queen, you know, and she decides, no, I need more Aliaza. I need more control. I need to put these people under my foot, you know, and and that is her undoing. I love villains who are from marginalized genders. I just do. And so I love a mean lady, just like a real bad bitch. <laughs> you know, you're just like, ooh, like part of me wants you to step on my neck and part of me wants to punch you in the tummy. Um <laughs> In this world, I don't want to punch anyone in the tummy IRL, but like if I had to fight, I would fight her. But it's like so interesting, like Sarah was saying, to, to take and, and say, yes, this is a matriarchy. Yes. And that can still be bad. Like that's still problematic. She's still abusing her power. And particularly to show a white woman doing that, I think is really important because we like to think of history. I think, you know, white folks of marginalized genders in particular were like, oh, you know, white men have really done everything wrong in the world. And it's like, did they not have some help? And yeah. they did. And so I think it's an interesting way of grappling with her. You know, she sees everyone as a pawn. She's willing to use her granddaughter, who is a person of color, to get what she wants because she's just so self-absorbed and so, again, an extraction mindset. Sarah and I were talking about Forgotten Home, and, and there's a lot here, right? Like, there's a lot of things that I, I'll say, like, I don't like. I don't like cops, right? Like, I don't want to read a book about a cop. But you made it nuanced. You made it about a cop who's trying to investigate the disappearances of people no one cares about. People who get, right. they just keep saying, like, well, they're gone now. And you don't make her the good cop. You make her a flawed character who really is running away from responsibility, who is, you know, hiding things from her child. And that's a problem. And that nuance just extends, you know, throughout our reality or the cipher for our reality and Jonada. You know, it's so interesting because it's so nuanced. And so, you know, I heard you talk about like mashing some things together, but it seems like that's part of your storytelling is, is it's about nuance. And, and I just want to know why is that and, and how do you bring so much nuance to your work? Um, I'm a very complicated person. And I'm not saying this to be like, oh, I'm so complex. I'm so, I'm so interesting. But I am. I'm a very complicated person. I'm in recovery for drugs and alcohol. I've been in recovery for 11 years. I know that there's a lot of terrible garbage things that I did when I was still using that I've had to make a lot of amends for. And I know that people are not perfect. I know that people are flawed and people are... Um, you know, we, we live in a society right now where you're sort of judged by your worst action. And I'm not saying this is 
by no means an endorsement or an indictment on cancel culture. I'm just saying in general, you know, the idea is you do one particular thing wrong in society and automatically there's an opinion of you. You know, I'm lucky as all hell that people did not have camera phones in my (laughs) high school and college years because if they did, I mean, I did some pretty terrible things and I was terrible to some people. And a lot of it had to do with self-preservation or perceived self-preservation, like a perceived threat, which then puts you in self-preservation mode, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't want to write characters that are perfect because I don't think that they're believable. I have another book called 12 Devils Dancing that is a horror book. And it's about a guy who is retired from the FBI And he thought he did all the right things. He broke some of the rules, but he thought he did it for the right reasons. And it turns out he didn't. And he really ends up having to live the consequences of his actions. And I think that that's what's more interesting than your sort of paragon of truth, justice in the American way. You know, nothing against Superman. DC, call me. Um, (laughs) But I think it's more real. I think it's more interesting. And I think it's more believable. One of the things that I teach is you always want there to be an emotional connection with your work to an audience. And the vast majority of the ways that an audience is going to connect with your work is through a character. Uh, I used to work in advertising and, you know, that's why people have uh, mascots for pretty much everything because it puts a face on an idea and therefore it's something that people can gravitate towards, that people can connect with. You know, whether it's Mr. Clean or the the Gecko Geico or like an or owl pretty. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It, or, or Baby Yoda or whatever. There There has to be some type of mascot kind of thing. And I want to tell stories where people don't just gravitate toward a character because they ship them, but they gravitate towards a character because they find them interesting. They find something about that character that either resonates with them personally or resonates with them because they remind them of a friend, of a lover, of a, of a family member, of a colleague, something like that. Not necessarily reading because it could be film or whatever, but that enriches their experience when they interact with the media. Yeah, definitely. I think about that stuff all of the time. Or just characters who do things that I would never do. Like, that's something that I see a lot, honestly, because there's tons of things I would never do, so... I've watched like a bunch of television recently and I keep thinking of Ratched, which is totally about uh, somebody who is <laughs> so terrible. And like, I kind of liked it. You know, I liked watching it to be like, this is certainly nothing I would ever do. <laughs> like, I would never pretend to be a nurse. There's all of these things, but like, I don't have to do those things. This is like our exercise, right? Like, we get to put our empathy into things or not you know like we can choose how we view things I think and that's something that fiction is great for I enjoy to be able to have those exercises and to be like yeah I'm not this person I would not do anything that this person is doing but they're still interesting like I'm constantly meeting people who I think are interesting even if I don't want to like hang out with them or something right well in that I mean in that case you yourself would never do those things But you're still able from a third person experience sort of fly on the wall, be able to see the consequences of the actions. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm not going to say it's a morality tale. I haven't watched Ratchet yet. It's in my queue. I haven't seen it yet. But um, and I'm not going to (laughs) say it's like actually a morality tale. But this idea of like 
showing consequences. And that, I think that that was something that was very important with Forgotten Home is showing right. consequences because Lorraine leaves Janata and comes to Earth and thinks, oh, okay, the only consequence that she had was thinking that Michael left her. And she never gave up on that. But then she just sort of went on with her life. She was raising her daughter and didn't really think about the home that she left, the the fiance that she left, the family that she left, and family being either by blood or by bond. You know, she didn't even really think about them. And then 15 years later, she's roped back in and she doesn't get off scot-free. And I thought that that was really important is when she sees Trader again, it's not hi, how are you? It's so great to see you. Give me a big hug and a kiss. It's this sort of like grumble, grumble. I have to see my ex and, you know, I want to give her a hard time, but I still need her. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think that you hit the nail on the head with like there being consequences. In episode 49, we got asked a question about who some of our favorite redeemed villains are. And so we ended up spending a lot of time actually troubling the notion of redeeming a villain because for me, I don't necessarily want all of my villains or people who make bad decisions. I don't want those things to be absolved. I want people to grapple with the implications of the decisions they make because I have to. And you talked about some of the things that you were bothered that you did when you were using. I think about me in the closet and I think about as I was trying to figure out who I was, all these awful, just like shitty behaviors I engaged in that hurt me and hurt other people. That's not gone now that I'm out. I'm not absolved of being a dickhead, you know, like I have to live with that. And I think that's why Forgotten Home is so powerful. Even Joanna, right, who gets manipulated. She's young, right? She's 14. She gets manipulated and thrust into this push and pull between her grandma and her mom. And she makes some bad decisions and she has to live with the implication of those and with what it does to her family. And that's beautiful. That's reality, right? Yeah. And I feel like even if you are in a mystical, magical world when you're telling a story, you can still bring that reality. This idea of emotional biography, you know, you can bring reality through emotion no matter what story you're telling. Your main characters could be dogs or cats or green aliens or whatever. But as long as you have some type of emotional connection with these characters, I'm going to say you show their humanity, for lack of a better term, because I don't know you know, what that word would be, but you show the fact that they have feelings, that they experience loss, that they experience powerlessness, that they experience this idea of inner conflict. Those are important, and I think it's important to show for any character. I think as I've written more, I've gotten more and more into writing flawed characters that are more gray as opposed to black and white of they're the good guy, the bad guy kind of thing. I think that that makes for more interesting discussions just in general. Like when you read a Superman comic, 99% of the time you're like, oh yeah, Superman's the good guy. Superman's going to you know, save the day kind of thing. And that's fine. And sometimes it's nice to sort of fall back on that perennial, okay, I've got the big blue Boy Scout to tell me everything's going to be okay. But I think that one of the advantages to indie comics is the fact that we can play in a little more gray area when it comes to characters. We can be a little more nuanced and we can sort of create situations that it isn't just choose A or choose B. 
because either one is going to have consequences. And it's sort of, you know, whether it's the lesser of evils or consequences that you didn't even originally think about, there's always a ripple effect. And I think that it's important for characters to go through that as well. Yeah, I also like that, you know, there's the the unintended consequences, right? Like the the other parts of what it means to be alive. And I've, I've forgotten his name, but Troder's uh, ex-Carol, yeah. he's like doing the right thing, right? When he's on the battlefield and then he just has to look up and ask for mercy and, and someone helps him. And there's like, okay, well now he has to like think about what does it mean to be part of this society that is just rampantly, wantonly killing another group of people that live in this society with them. And I, I like that. I think it's good to have characters grapple with legacies they inherit and their own actions. And then like, you know, the weird soup of reality that comes after that. It just feels very, again, like real and a real challenge to readers that, okay, what does this mean? If this is the case for these folks, what does it mean for us, right? Like the mining isn't just a question about Alieza. It's, it's, a, it's a question about what are our extractive goals and, and what are we doing with the resources we are pulling from the earth and who are we helping with them? It, you know, maybe not all queens, but yeah, we're giving it to the people who already have the most. And that should make us reflect. So it's very cool to see a piece that has so many threads pulled together in such a thoughtful and like intentional way. Frankly, I love it. So I also <laughs> want to talk about the queer shit. There's a lot of queer Thank shit you. in here. Yeah. There's, yeah, I, there's I, like, I put plenty of queer shit in there. But I, I didn't want to. running away together. Loved that. There's Troder, you know, loving a lady, loving a dude. Tadavi is like non-binary. It's good stuff. And the thing is, though, I didn't want to have like a giant neon sign saying, look, there's queer characters. Look at me. I'm doing something radical. No, I, I wanted it to be just sort of like normal. I do have to say that like Trader is like the most tragic of all the characters because after Lorraine leaves, he's OK, well, then I'm going to have a relationship with Carol. And then Carol's like, no, nah, I don't want anything serious. So, you know, poor Trader really gets the shit end of the stick on this. Just a lovesick bisexual. He is. He's actually pan polyamorous. Oh, I love him even more. Yes. And he's the tragic figure in all of this. But um, the world is populated with all kinds of people. And my idea for Janata was not to be one specific thing. Like, I wanted there to be all different kinds of people in there, too. So why wouldn't you have, like, bisexuals and pan and queer people? And why wouldn't you have people like that? Because that would be dumb, because if you're trying to inject some type of realism in this, you know, fantasy world where people have purple magic, then add realism of real types of people. And I was just like, all right, fine. Like, this is this character and that's that character. And I didn't want it to be like weird. I didn't want to present it as, you know, look at me. I'm going to show, you know, a queer character. I'm going to show a disabled character. And, you know, I didn't want to do that. I just did it because... I feel like if you present it as if it is normal, then maybe someday people will see it as normal. Yeah, I think that that's a great way to approach it. I don't know. I really appreciated it. I thought that it added a lot. And it always does, right? Almost always, I think. Unless like, <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, I do have to take it back because there are times when I've been like, maybe this person shouldn't have put a queer character in this story because it worked out really badly. But like for the most part, yeah, people adding more queer characters is always just going to help normalize it and make it be something that's more present, right? And I think it's more realistic. 
Yeah, totally. And it just makes things better, honestly. Like, that's kind of my thing is, is there's so much of a fandom around queer X-Men or something like that. And then so few queer X-Men. And it's just like that story gets better whenever there's queer characters in it, though, like because it makes more sense. Right. It enriches the characters themselves, but it also gives you more opportunity to explore different relationships, different types of relationships. If you're talking about the X-Men, there was a version of Colossus where he was queer and his relationship with Nightcrawler suffered from that because Nightcrawler was devout Catholic. And that was an interesting road to go down, you know, to see that relationship, to see how this one character coming out is going to affect the team. That was a storyline that had you not made him queer, you wouldn't have been able to explore that. And I thought that that was really interesting. Um, And North Star's wedding and things like that. You know, there's adding queer characters to a story. First of all, I mean, I'm going to be gross here and talk finances. First of all, it opens your fan base. Let's be honest. You're opening yourself up to more people buying your work. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. that's gross talking about money, but like, you know, let's be honest here. Secondly, you're allowing more people to experience your work. And also you're giving yourself more options to work with interplay with characters, to work with interplay with situations. It's a win for everybody in my mind, because you're giving yourself more complex, interesting storylines and more interesting ways to go. Trudeau, honestly, is my favorite character in this whole thing. I know he's not even the main character, but like, Originally, he was just going to be a throwaway character. And when I was writing more and more, I figured I was like, no, this is a character that really needs more weight to him. But also, there's a lot of emotional stuff that he's either not dealing with or suppressing. And he's very resentful. Like he's, he's the type of person who loves so much that if he doesn't get more than the love that he puts out, he gets resentful. And, th- and we see that because he's resentful against Carol because they have that sort of little back and forth when they're waiting for, um, spoiler, when they're waiting for Bajek to inoculate Lorraine. But he also has that sort of resentful back and forth with Lorraine when they're in the cells because it's this idea of I loved you so much and you didn't love me as much as I loved you. So I'm angry at you, but I still love you, but I'm still angry at you, you know, <laughs> and that is a true emotion that happens. That's just like pansexual polyamorous reality, um, you know, as one. Um, yeah, I think that that's true. You know, I was just thinking about how it's so annoying when you're watching something and it's clear two characters are just like fucking in love, but because it's queer, no one will let it be what it is or reading something or, you know, engaging with any media. I've been thinking about uh, Supercorp, Supergirl and Lena Luther, mm-hmm. and how, you know, like I, I don't watch Supergirl that much, but like every time I do, I'm like, I don't get it. Like, what's the debate? Like, they're clearly in love. Like, they're crying so much about hurting each other's feelings. Not that, like, I don't cry for hurting friends' feelings, but, like, right, right. I don't touch them quite that way. There's just, like, some sweetness here. And it's just so sad that because of societal norms, because of limited imaginations, like, so rarely do those get to organically evolve. I think that that's what makes something where a character does just sort of be like, oh, well, um, I'm in love with a woman now. Like, it feels more organic because it is organic because that's what happens to people. <laughs> like, sometimes you just turn around and you're in love with a woman. You didn't mean to be. And okay, here we go. You know? and, and that's the thing. And I think a lot of it comes down to who's writing the work. And the experiences that they've had. And they don't have to personally have experiences. Like they don't have to personally be 
pansexual polyamorous, but having friends that are and discussing with friends and hearing their experiences and not just like listening to somebody, you know, complain about an ex, but like legitimately absorbing the information, not just on like an informational level, but on an emotional level. And part of that, right, is like having a stake in what happens to them. Like to really have a connection with someone who is different from you, who opens your mind to to ways the world works that you didn't know about. Like that's very different from befriending a queer person so you can have a queer friend. (laughs) Um, There's like some real depth there and and it should change you, right? Like if you've never had a queer best friend and, and you're a straight person and you become really close with a queer person, that should change you in some ways because it it is such a different way of being in the world. So yeah, I mean, there's so much um, veracity in this work. And I think the queerness, and I like to call it like a quotidian queerness, right? Like we didn't need you to write 15 paragraphs about the two girls who were like, let's go find a beach. <laughs> like we know what they're going to do on the beach and we are happy for them, <laughs> you know? We didn't need you to be like, Tadavi is non-binary. You can just use a gender neutral pronoun and we can piece it together, you know? <laughs> like that to me, is like how you make queerness the fabric of a story, the fabric of reality. And to me, when I read that, I'm like, delicious. I will take (laughs) 10 more. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. What you're working on now is the legacy of Mandrake. Is that right? Or is that? Okay, sweet. Yeah. So that has um, a couple issues on comiXology right now. Is it only on comiXology? No, it is in print. The zero issue for Legacy of Mandrake is actually free. There is a one and done 32 page issue that we did as kind of like the introduction of this new character. And then we have the main series, which is a four issue mini series. Issues one and two are in stores. I know issue one is on Comixology. I don't know if issue two has been uploaded yet, but issue two is definitely in it stores. Is. It, it is. It is on okay. Comixology. There you go. There yeah, you I go. just read it. <laughs> um, and I want to say like the first or second week in December is when issue three is coming out and then issue four will be January. And then when the trade paperback comes out, all five issues. So it'll have the zero issue and the four issue mini collected as the trade. There's kind of a different vibe for this one. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because this is a work for hire. So as much freedom as I was given by King Features and everybody to work on this, there is still some parameters that I had to kind of stay within, like had to play in the box, but still like, you know, dip my toe out. And I wanted to have a character who was really fun and impetuous and sort of like, I'm not going to say that Joanna was sort of like the proto Mandy because, you know, Joanna from Forgotten Home has her own issues and things like that. Um, And she's 15, whereas this character is almost 18. And Mandy has a link to the original character Mandrake. And that series was from, I think, 1938 to like the early 2000s. Uh, It was originally Lee Falk's character. And the original strips had, they were very problematic with gender and race roles and things like that. And obviously we threw all of that out. But there were certain things that they wanted to keep in terms of the spirit of this new comic. So Mandy has a link to the original Mandrake. Her mother and the original Mandrake were very close friends. Everybody's like, oh, she's Mandrake's daughter. She's not Mandrake's daughter. I'm telling you that right now. She's not Mandrake's daughter. I'm not spoiling (laughs) anything by saying that. But like so many people have said that. I'm like, she's not. 
like, oh God, just listen to me for the love of God, people. Uh, but anyway, so she, but she does have a link to him. Her mother was very close friends. Her mother's very close friends with Lothar, who is from the original comics, was Mandrake's sort of sidekick. But here he is his own person. And Mandy's best friend is Lothar's son, LJ, who himself has abilities. I didn't want to show Mandy having like magic that works all the time. I wanted to show the fact that really a lot of the times when her magic works well, a lot of it is luck. I wanted to show the fact that she will rely on her magic and then realize that it's totally going to make things even worse. And I didn't want to say, oh, yeah, here's a girl, Mandy, and a guy, LJ, and of course, they're going to be love interests. No, I even have a scene in the Zero issue where, you know, LJ says, me and her, it's not like that with us. You know, they have a brother-sister type relationship. Uh, they care about each other very, very much. It's not a romantic relationship. If we choose to make it a romantic relationship later, that's fine. But there's, I think you're, you, you might be referring to in the first issue, there's one specific page that I really wanted to get in. And I thought it was interesting because I had had a conversation with one of my career students and they had mentioned that they used to work in a retirement home and the propensity of older people coming out in late stage of their lives because they are widowed now was really interesting. So I wanted to capture that in this moment where Mandy's doing magic it looks like fake magic, but it really is real magic for this retirement home. And she has everybody holding these sort of cartoonishly large playing cards. And she says, let me find some dates for you tonight. And she changes the playing cards to either kings or queens. And the little old lady was sitting next to a little old man. And he looks to her and he says, I think she got our dates mixed up to show that he's queer and she's queer. And it was just like a cutesy kind of like moment, like a haha kind of moment. But a lot of people, it's been resonating with a lot of people. And I was I was proud of that moment. I, I thought it was really fun. I thought it was nice. I thought it's sincere. Like I, I say it was a cutesy moment, but I didn't do it as like a, hey, gotcha kind of moment. I did it as like a sincere kind of like, oh, hey, you know, queer people could be of any age um, kind yeah. of thing. And a lot of people really like that. And plus, you know, it's these like cute, like little old people being like, oh, ha ha ha, you know, oh, thank you for my queen date kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that there's definitely a lot of myths around coming out, right? Which is you do it one time when you're like 18 or something. And then it's just like, no, a lot of people come out their whole lives because you always like you regularly have to tell people. And then also the fact that yeah, you never really see elderly queer people very much. And if you do, it's like, I don't know, I think of it like, oh, yeah, and like the Sandman where they're like villains or like, you yeah. know, something like that. But yeah, no, that that moment was just precious. And I think that that was nice. So I wanted to ask, what have you learned about writing comics from teaching? Because I can only assume that you become a better writer as you teach, right? I do think so. Um what I've learned is that it really is important to organize your thoughts. I know in novel writing, there's something called you're either a pantser or a planner. You're either somebody who writes by the seat of their pants or you're somebody who plans. I'm a planner and I don't know if that's good, bad or indifferent, but for me, I'm kind of like type A when it comes to continuity errors and it comes to like consistency of characters and things like that. And it always kills me when 
I'm, you know, watching, reading something and a character does something that's very out of character and we haven't seen it lead up to that. We haven't seen any type of incident or experience that would um, make the character do what they just did. So I'm very big on planning things out and planning out arcs and things like that. And actually, I've always sort of had a process, but I've never really sat down and written it out and really sort of like quantified it, for lack of a better term. And in teaching, I was kind of forced to sit down and make like a textbook and quantify it and say, this is this step, and then you do this, and then you do that. So it's helped me sort of put names to the process that I have sort of willy-nilly forest gumped my way through. So I can teach it as a legitimate paradigm, as a legitimate procedure for organizing a story and then having the story come to fruition. Yeah, that's interesting. And you've been teaching at the Kubert School for how long? Uh, This is my second year teaching. Nice. I had taught some online writing courses for them as well. But we do teach at the Kubert School. You can actually sign up for online courses now at kubertschool.edu. So if anybody wants to look into, there's drawing courses, there's writing courses, there's all kinds of stuff. That's right. I think about taking the lettering course sometimes because the penmanship, it's just not there. But uh, <laughs> Well, it's not, it's not hand lettering. It would be lettering comics. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, they have such a reputation, right, for being yeah. just the best. So anybody who's interested in learning more about the craft should definitely do so. So what do you have coming up after Mandrake? I have some stuff that are in various stages of pitching. <laughs> um, right, right. You know, this is kind of a weird time right now um, yeah. in terms of like pitching stuff. And some publishers have kind of taken a bit of a financial hit. So it's not like they can greenlight stuff the way they wanted to. Um, I edited an anthology called Murky Waters with a writer named Christian Carnouche. He and I worked together on his original series called The Resurrected. So the Kickstarter is ending for that in about a week. I am lettering a story with AJ Lee and Amy Garcia. They worked on the Glow Comics at IDW, and it's being drawn by Leanna Kangas. Uh, It's called Eastside Saints. So I'm working on that. I am an editor at Mad Cave Studios. So I am editing a series with Stellaria and Eric Burnham, and that'll be out next spring. And I'm working on a couple of stories. One is about three sisters. So working on Charmed really helped uh, sort of (laughs) work me up for that. I'm working on a story with Van Jensen and Anike, who's a Spanish artist. And I'm in the early stages of reworking a story that I originally started writing back in like 2012. One thing I do want to say, though, is that for Forgotten Home, the story would not have been a tenth as good as it is without the contributions of the artists. Uh, Natasha Alterici, the cover artist, did a phenomenal job. I Um, love Natasha Alterici. She does such great great art. (laughs) She's fantastic. I I love Natasha. I loved working with her on Forgotten Home. She got a Ringo nomination for doing the covers for Forgotten Home. Marika Cresta, amazing, incredible artist. She's on Dr. Afro right now for Marvel. Right, Um, yeah. Really beautiful, beautiful work. I cannot over or understate her skill and professionalism. Matt Emmons, terrific, terrific colorist, great guy to work with, really did a really bang up job on the book. Yazelle Ayala, if you end up getting the trade paperback, you will see that Yazelle had designed 
several of the gowns and the royal Janata garb, and we see her original fashion designs. And oh, cool. So we see those as a side by side. So we see Yazelle's original designs and how Marika and Matt rendered them. Really so just cool. The back matter is really, really dope in Forgotten Home. I mean, just beautiful, incredible work. Kevin Maher did an amazing job on the logo design. That flame logo that he had done for the logo for the book ended up becoming such an important part of the story as the birthmark for these characters, so much so that I actually have a tattoo to my arm. Um, ah. It was funny because I sent him a photo of it and he goes, is that real? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he's nope, like, just drew it on. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, that's that's pretty intense. I'm like, well, that's how much I believe in your work. And Kevin and I have known each other since college. We've I, we've literally known each other 20 plus years. And he's a fantastic designer and, and artist himself. He's a great cartoonist. And we used to love talking about comics when we were in college together. So, I mean, the team on this book really knocked it out. I mean, we were very, very lucky. This past last month, we were up for five Ringo Awards for Forgotten Home. Uh, best cover artist, best inker, best letterer from Cardinal Ray, best writer, and best series. So the team really did such an incredible job. So I can't take, you know, a third of the credit because, you know, like we talked about before, it's just collaboration and just elevating it. So yeah. Yeah, I like to see comics where everybody is doing their best work and kind of one-upping each other like the whole time, right? Like that's something we were talking about, I think, pretty deadly doing that because it's just like you see this like script, which is incredible, and then it's just like, and then the art comes in and then the colors come in and it's just like, it's so fun to watch. So I did get that same feeling reading this, so. And part of the back matter, I mean, I show the process, I show like, here's just the script, and then you see what Marika did, and then you see what Matt did, and then you see the whole page coming together, and it's like, oh, whoa. To say that everybody brought their A-game almost feels like a disparagement. I mean, like, they brought their, like, A++, like, 5.0 game, <laughs> you know? I mean, they really they really kicked ass on this. And, it, and being an eight-issue series, like, that's a long haul. Usually miniseries yeah. are, like, four or five issues. And when we originally pitched the story, I had always envisioned it being eight issues. And when we originally pitched to a couple publishers, they were all like, okay, we'll do it, but we want it to be five issues. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, you could do the story in five issues, but you wouldn't do it well. You could do it decently in six, but to really get the nuance, to really get the full emotional impact of the story as a whole, you need eight. And God bless Comixology for saying, all right, fine, let's do it in eight. You know, let's <laughs> let's go for it and really letting us do it the way we wanted to do it. And I think, you know, the five nominations pretty much said, hey, yeah, you did a good job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty ringing endorsement. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Erica, you've done so many cool properties. You are a teacher, you're a writer, you're everything. And it is amazing that you've made so much time for us today. It's really cool to hear you muse on your creative process. And I always think, yeah, I think Sarah feels this way, too. It's like always fun to talk to someone who teaches what they do because there's such a intentionality and like a lot of like, again, like philosophizing about like the why which is like the really fun part I think when we talk about craft is like why does craft matter um, oh I'm so just bullshitting <laughs> <laughs> hey, I really don't know perfect. what I'm talking about perfect. don't tell my students that though <laughs> um, I'm sure they are all listening probably not 
that's like when someone was like, I hope my dad doesn't hear this. I was like, I don't think your dad will. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's just, it's really cool to just like talk some shit. Like, why not? Like, we can talk about shit. <laughs> so thank you so much for making time for us. If people wanted to find you on social or check out your website, where would you direct them? Social media. So I have Erica Schultz Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S at Instagram. Um, EricaSchultzWrites.com is my website. And my Twitter is EricaSchultz42. Awesome. We will include all of that in the show notes. So if you don't know how to spell Schultz or Erica <laughs> or Writes, we got your back. You do not have to know. <laughs> it's Schultz with a C and the C stands for comics. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you got me. You got me. I used to say the C stands for something else, but, you know. <laughs> that may not be airworthy. You know what? You can say whatever you want to do. It's, no, it's bitches I, I know. I know, there, I know that's a very, like, touchy word, which is why I always love going to England because I can say it and, like, nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. All my friends who are, like, you know, have British influence, like, my friend from Singapore, she would, like, drop it in college and I'd be like, what the fuck? You can just say that word? And then I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And it didn't go as well. <laughs> Did not go as well. It's just maybe that British accent that you're like, oh, cute. Fantastic. The C word. Comics, obviously, is what we mean when we say that. Exactly. You know, it just sounds better when British people say comics. Um, <laughs> listeners, thanks for joining us. Obviously, Erica's the shit. Go check out her shit on Comixology. Get it from your local comic book store. These are good stories with nuanced and delightful diversity that is in no way forced. So we appreciate that. If you want to learn more about the podcast, check out bitchesoncomics.com or find us over on Twitter or Instagram at, at bitchesoncomics. And I want to say thank you to the two of you for taking the time to let me ramble and just be weird. So I thank you very, very <laughs> much for that. And, you know, I wish you guys the best of luck and, you know, getting through the rest of this crazy ass year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real, for real. Yeah, talking shit and hanging out, that's pretty much the motto of this podcast. So you, <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed yeah. it. Well, it was an honor. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. We are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot. T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm Essie Fleenor. You can learn more about me at essiefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, 
the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.